All right, you guys can turn to Romans chapter 6. That's where we will be again this morning. Romans chapter 6. Our passage this morning is all about false advertising. False advertising. So uh, I scoured the internet looking for some of the best examples of false advertising. Here's the cream of the crop. Best examples I could find of false advertising. Here is a really nice pull and slide combo. I would like this for my kids. It looks great. It's big. Uh, It looks like something you would find in a resort. Uh, But then you open the box and you find this thing inside. So uh, I don't know if this is just one of the more skillful uses of Photoshop or if they actually found 12-inch tall toddlers somewhere in the world to use as models. That's amazing. Um, Pales in comparison to this, this pool. Um, here's a nice little pool. You got three kids inside of it. Looks like a, a great option for toddlers. You open it up, and it's that. <laughs> oh my goodness! I hope that little girl got her money back. That is just so sad. Uh, another creative use of Photoshop. Um, here's another one. Here's a hotel in Washington D.C. Looks great. You just walk out of your hotel, and there's the Capitol. You can just walk right into session. Um, but then you show up at the hotel, and actually, the Capitol's like two miles away. That's amazing. How'd they do that? They deleted buildings, added trees, changed space and time. It's incredible. Great false advertising there. Um, these are humorous examples. Here's one that's uh, not quite as humorous. A lady named Lydia Pinkenback, right after the Civil War, bottled and marketed a cure-all. It was a medicinal compound, a vegetable compound that she claimed would cure all womanly illnesses and weaknesses. Now, uh, I don't know what that means, being a guy, but uh, I do know that apparently there were a lot of women who wanted it. It was huge marketing success, sold tons of it. Uh, It turns out there was no medicine in it. It was a placebo, but it was made with 20% alcohol, and so made you feel better at least for a while. Um, All of these examples of false advertising pale compared to this one, uh, Dr. Koch's Cure All. It was started in 1919. A guy named Dr. William Koch uh, invented something he called Glioslide uh, that he marketed as a cure for all human ills. It would cure tuberculosis, cancer, infections, even common allergies. Uh, People paid a ton of money for it, up to $300 per shot. That's not in today money. That's in back then money. A ton of money. Uh, Actually paying a ton of money for what turned out to be just water. It was 100% distilled water. Most expensive water, I guess, ever sold. $300 a shot for distilled water. The tragedy of it, though, was that many patients stopped using the prescription medicines they were given for these ailments and instead got injected with water and died. False advertising at its best is funny. At its worst is fatal. That's what this morning's passage is all about. Really the ultimate case of false advertising. Greatest false advertising ever perpetuated upon the human race is sin. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the false advertising of sin. Now to set the stage, let's review for a moment. Book of Romans, it's all about the righteousness of God. God is right in all that he is and in all that he does. His righteousness is expressed in his judgment of the human race. It is expressed in justification and it is expressed in sanctification. That's the the portion of the book that we're in this morning. Just to review for you some some definitions. Justification, that's what we studied a few weeks ago for a while. Uh, Justification is about the instantaneous change in status that God affects in a person's life the moment they believe the gospel. 
If you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, in an instant, God changes your status from sinner to righteous. He declares you to be eternally righteous in his sight no matter what. That's justification. Now we've entered the section of the book about sanctification. Sanctification is different. It's distinct. Sanctification is a process. It is a process that changes not our status, but our character. That's what sanctification is about. Changing your character, your behavior. Sanctification is the process whereby God makes you righteous in experience through the power of his Holy Spirit. That's what chapters 6 through 8 of Romans are all about. Now, we're in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is all about our motivation for sanctification, If I already have justification, if I already have the status of righteous in God's sight and will always have it for all of time, it's already settled, then why bother pursuing sanctification? Why should I try to grow in righteousness if I already have justification? That is what chapter six is designed to answer. It's designed to give us motivation for sanctification. And that motivation hinges upon a question that appears twice in slightly different forms at the beginning and at the middle of chapter six of Romans. We looked at the first instance of this question last week, verse 1. Look with me there. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In verse 1, what Paul is getting at here uses sin in the singular form, a singular noun. He's looking at sin as a master. Not particular acts of sin, but sin as a master. Should we let sin as a master rule over our lives? And if you recall from last week, the motivation for that question came from chapter 5, verse 20, where Paul said that in all of human history, wherever sin increased, grace superabounded. Grace increased above sin. And so the logical question, if, if every time I sin, it gives opportunity for God's grace to increase, then why not let sin rule in my life so I can get more and more of God's grace? That's what we looked at last week. This week, similar, but a little different. Look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Paul's not looking at sin as a master here. He's looking at the commission of sins. Shall we commit sins? Shall we do sinful things? That's the focus here. And the motivation is a little different. The motivation for this question comes from verse 14. Look at verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Shall I commit sins because I am not under law but under grace? Paul in verse 14 is contrasting two different ways of life. The first way of life is described as life under the law. The law, the Mosaic covenant of the Old Testament, is how I approach God. I obey these lists of commands in order to receive blessings from God. Paul is saying that way of life is finished. Christ finished that for you. That has been set aside. You now approach God in a different way of life, a way called grace. You live under grace. You approach God through grace and grace alone. You receive God's blessings as a free gift of grace. You are no longer under the law. You're no longer under this list of do's and don'ts. That's not how you approach God. And so that leads to the logical question. If I am free of the law, then why not indulge sin? If I'm free of the law, then why not do whatever I want to do? After all, sin is awfully alluring. Sin is advertised to us by by the world, by Satan, by our flesh as something that's fun, as something that's pleasurable and and satisfying and natural. It's normal, it's easy, it's what everybody does. So why shouldn't we? 
Why should we not indulge sinful temptations? We no longer live under the law. Paul's clear about that. That's not how we approach God. So why not indulge sin? That's the question our passage answers this morning. Now, now Paul's actual answer to the question is short and to the point. It's the end of verse 15. Paul simply says, may it never be. No, it's emphatic in the Greek. May it never, ever, ever be that you would do this. May it never be that you, a believer, would indulge sin. Now, that's his answer in short. What we really want to get at, though, is his explanation. Why? Paul, if I don't live under the law, if that's not how I approach God, if I'm not held to a list of do's and don'ts, then why not indulge sin? Why, Paul? That's what Paul is going to explain in verses 16 through 23. And what he's going to get at the core of his argument is we need to understand sin is falsely advertised. We have been lied to by the world, by Satan, by our flesh. Sin is not what it appears to be. Paul wants to cut through the false advertising of sin this morning. He's going to do so by giving us three truths about sin. Three truths that help us understand why is it that we shouldn't indulge sin. Why should we not give in? Truth number one is found in verses 17 and 18. Look with me there. Verses 17 and 18. Paul says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin. And I want to hit pause there. Having been freed from sin. The first truth Paul wants us to understand, the first reason not to indulge in sin is because sin is never necessary. Sin is unnecessary for the believer. Now, that's contrary to how it's advertised. Sin is advertised to you by the world, by Satan, by your flesh, as necessary, as normal, as inescapable. Satan in the flesh and in the world, it whispers in your ear, well, you're a guy. You, you can't help doing that. You can't help being that way. You, you're a girl. You, you can't help thinking that way, feeling that way, speaking that way. It, it's natural. It's just who you are. You can't help it. But that's a lie. Paul wants us to understand, for us who are believers, sin is never necessary. It is never unavoidable. And that's really the point that he made in last week's passage. He is just summarizing in this verse all of his point last week. We have been freed from the mastery of sin. We no longer belong to sin. Paul tells us how that happened at the, in the second half of verse 17. He says you've been freed from sin because you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That is just a fancy, eloquent way of saying you've been freed from sin by believing the gospel. The center of all Christian teaching, you became obedient in the sense of belief. You believed that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. The moment you believed that good news, you were freed from sin. Verse 18a, you were set free by God. That's passive past tense. At a moment in time in the past, you were set free from the mastery of sin through belief in the gospel. Now, if you're here this morning, you've never believed that good news, that God offers you freedom from the penalty of sin. You can be free of the mastery of sin. You can have eternal life, live with God forever. If you simply believe that Jesus, the son of God, really did die for your sins in your place, he took God's punishment on your behalf, and then rose from the dead to conquer sin and death on your behalf, the moment you believe that, that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, you are given eternal life. You are set free from the chains of sin at that moment. 
Okay, so we have been set free from the chains of sin. Sin is no longer our master. We do not have to obey it. The problem is that's really hard for some of us to believe. We know, we see it in scripture, but it's, it's hard to believe on a daily basis for some of us. We've been sinning for a long time. Some of us have been sinning for decades because we, we sin every day. We struggle with sin on a regular basis. And after a while, particular sins, when we give in to them over and over again, it feels like we can't stop, like, like we can't resist it, like that sin's just part of who I am. I, I can't stop doing it. Uh, in truth, we're acting like circus elephants. I don't know if you've ever visited the circus. It's, it's always amazed me um, on the very few chances that I have gone to the circus that these massive animals, massive elephants, are restrained by a tiny little chain connected to a stake that seems like it's barely been tapped in the ground. Now, you know, you look at that, you do the math, that elephant could easily break the chain or at least push the stake over and walk away. Easy for a bull elephant to do that. So why don't they? Well, it gets into how you train an elephant. You take the elephant when it's a baby, tiny little baby, and you restrain it with that exact same chain and stake. You, You keep it from moving with that exact same chain and stake, and it fights against it, but it's a baby, it can't break free. And so elephants, they're smart, they learn. They learn, I can't break the chain. I can't resist the chain. Well, over the years, the elephant grows, but it's learned the lesson. It's become conditioned to not fight the chain any longer. And so even as a bull elephant that could easily break free, it never tries because it has been conditioned to believe that it's impossible to break the chain. That's exactly the kind of hold that sin has on so many believers. Even though in scripture it is clear you are freed of the mastery of sin, you are free of slavery to sin, we don't believe it. It's too hard for us to believe. We let sin have this authority, this hold over us. So how do we break away? How do we break the chain of sin? That's actually what we looked at last week. I just want to review two steps that we looked at at the end of last week's sermon. Look back at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That verb consider, it means to believe. This isn't just something to read in your Bible, hear in a sermon, know as a fact. It's something you need to believe. You need to own it. And I encourage you last week to memorize portions of chapter 6. I want you to memorize portions of that chapter so that when temptation comes calling, you can quote this passage to sin. Quote it to temptations. You don't own me anymore. Memorize it so that you believe it. You need to own this truth. So the first step is consider yourselves, believe that you are dead to sin. Second step, verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not let it reign. It has no authority that you don't give it. The only authority sin has in the life of the believer is the authority that the believer gives to sin because it has no legal mastery over you. Don't let it rule over your life. Break the chain walk away. It's a choice you make on a daily basis to walk out of the mastery of sin. Believe it's true, live like it's true, that sin is never necessary again for the believer. That's the first reason to resist sin, to not indulge sin, because you don't have to. You've been freed from it. Second truth that Paul gives us, to cut through the false advertising of sin, it's the second half of verse 18. Finish verse 18 with me. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Second truth Paul wants us to understand. Second reason not to indulge in sin is because sin for the believer is inappropriate. Sin is inappropriate because we have a new master. 
Here in verse 18, our new master is called righteousness. In verse 16, it's called obedience. The key is verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have a new master, God. And your new master does not approve of sin. Not even little sins, no sin. He doesn't improve of sin at all. Uh, what we need to understand when Paul talks about God freeing us from our slavery to sin, what God has actually done when you look at, at the biblical revelation, what God has actually done is he purchased you out of sin and into his own kingdom. He didn't purchase you so that you could go be free over there. No, he bought you. You now belong to God. You went from being a slave of sin to a slave of God. You are God's possession. You are God's slave. Now, we hear that and it doesn't sound real great to us. We're 21st century Americans. We don't like to think of ourselves as slaves. We pride ourselves on our independence and on our freedom. What we need to understand is the Bible is very, very clear. Absolute freedom is not in the nature of human beings. Absolute freedom is not possible for homo sapien. Now, you won't hear that in school. You only hear that in the Bible. Freedom is not a possibility for human beings. It's not how we were designed. It's not part of our nature. God created us to be dependent, subservient beings. We can't change that. That's just a fact of our nature. It reminds me of one of my favorite Calvin and Hobbes cartoon strips. Uh, Calvin experiences a moment of freedom when his mom gets distracted. And so he goes and grabs a cape and puts it on his back, grabs a ladder, goes up on the roof and jumps off the roof like a bird. Problem was Calvin misunderstood the nature of his freedom. Was he free to act like a bird? Absolutely. Was he free to be a bird? No. And so he face planted into rose bushes. So it is with us. Are we free to act like we're free? Yes. But can we be free? No. It's not within our nature to be absolutely free. Human beings can't be that. Human beings, all of us, are slaves. We can't escape that fact of our nature. We are all slaves of one of two masters. You can divide the entire human race into those who are slaves of sin and those who are slaves of God. We are all slaves, either slaves of sin or slaves of God. Slaves of sin, obeying the animalistic impulses that spring up within us or the temptation that surrounds us. Or slaves of God, obeying the dictates and the leadings of his spirit and his word. You are slaves either of sin or of God. Now as believers, we have been set free from slavery to sin. We are all slaves of God. And that brings with it new expectations, new responsibilities. God as our good master, our authoritative master, he expects us to follow him in every area of life. God does not excuse any sin. God expects obedience across the board in every way. Sin is no longer appropriate. When you sin, you are acting like you still belong to sin. God doesn't look at that favorably. It's never appropriate, never right, never excusable for the believer to give in to sin because we have a new master and he expects obedience to him. We are slaves of God. That's the second reason not to indulge in sin. Third reason Paul gives us not to indulge in sin is because sin is destructive. Sin is destructive. When I came to A&M back in 1994, um, my freshman year was spent living in Dunn Hall. I don't know if any of you live in Dunn Hall. Um, it was quite a quite an experience. Um, moved into Dunn Hall and found that uh, a lot of guys living in Dunn Hall were enjoying this newfound thing called freedom. For many of them, this is the first time living outside of the house, and so they could do whatever they want. And so for many of them, they, they simply did uh, whatever they had been wanting to do for many years. Um, for some of them, freedom was expressed in never doing laundry. 
Okay, so they just piled up their clothes on one end of the room and would cycle through them uh, over time. Uh, for others, freedom was expressed in staying up till 4 a.m. They, they never wanted to go to bed on time. Stayed up till 4 a.m. every night. Uh, for others, it was ordering pepperoni rolls, uh, dinner, noon, and night. When I think of Dunhall to this day, the smell that comes to my nostrils is pepperoni rolls because everybody was always eating pepperoni rolls in Dunhall. Um, for others, they expressed their freedom by drinking beer all night. Even though we were freshmen, we were all underage somehow, uh, they had beer and they would drink it all night. That was their freedom. And, and then for most of the guys, uh, freedom was expressed in playing video games 24-7. 1994, that was the year that A&M was wired with the internet. Dunhall had all of these wonderful connections. You could plug in your computers. Guys started to play network-matched games all the time. Literally all the time. I had one guy living down the hall. We called him Nacho. I don't remember why. Uh, Nacho loved to play video games. He loved it so much that he did not want to pause to eat. And so had a brilliant idea. He filled his desk with baby food jars. And so between matches, as he's waiting to respawn, he would pop one open, eat it real quick, get enough energy to keep playing so he could play 24-7. Well, what the men of Dunhall learned... Yeah, Think about that for a moment. That's what freedom looks like for a guy living in Dunhall. What the men of Dunhall learned is that you are free to do whatever you want, but you are not free to escape the consequences. You're not free to escape the consequences. So the guys who never did laundry, they stunk. No girl wanted to be in the same building with them. The guys who never slept, they got sick. The guys who ate pepperoni rolls all the time, they got really fat, really quick. Uh, the guys who drank beer all night, they lived with a hangover. Hard to take tests with a hangover. The guys who played video games 24-7, they flunked at A&M. You're free to do whatever you want, but you're not free of the consequences. Those guys made foolish decisions because they bought into the false advertising of sin. Sin claims that it will give you fun. It will give you satisfaction. You can do all the things you ever wanted. Life will be so rich and meaningful if you just give in to sin. Sin promises satisfaction and fun, but it delivers just the opposite. That's what the guys of Dunhall learned. That's what I'm hoping we can learn from Paul without going through those mistakes, through that pain. We need to learn sin promises fun and satisfaction, but it always delivers the opposite. Paul makes that point by contrasting for us the consequences that come either through choosing obedience or choosing sin. That's what I want to look at for most of the rest of this morning. Um, That's what most of the rest of our passage is about. So if you'll look with me, we're going to pick up the passage in verse 16 um, and read the rest of it. Verse 16, Paul wants us to contrast the consequences of sin and obedience. He says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Skip down to verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's making three contrasts here. 
three contrasts between the, con- the consequences of obedience and sin. Contrast number one, if you choose obedience, you grow as a slave of obedience. If you choose sin, you grow as a slave of sin. Now, how does that relate to what we just studied in verse 17? In verse 17, it said that because you have believed the gospel, you have been freed from sin and now belong to God. Well, verses 17 and 18 are talking about the status of slavery. The status. You are, before conversion, you were owned by sin. Legally speaking, you were a slave of sin. That was your status in the eyes of the universe. After your conversion, you no longer belong to sin legally. It has no legal authority over you. You now belong to God. That's your status, a slave of God. That's what verses 17 and 18 are about, the status of slavery. These verses, verse 16 and 19, are about the experience of slavery. Whether you belong to sin or not, if you choose sin, you're living like a slave of sin. You will experience slavery to sin. The easiest way to think about this, slavery as experience rather than status, think back to last week. Who was the guy we talked about at the beginning last week? Denver Moore guy who lived as a sharecropper in 1950s Louisiana. Now, 1950s, that's long after the Emancipation Proclamation. Legally speaking, the guy was not a slave. However, he lived like one. He experienced slavery in his life because he gave authority to the man who owned the land. That's what we're talking about in verses 16 and then 19 through 23. When you give someone authority, you experience slavery. That's where we're going. Paul wants us to understand you are a slave to whatever you obey. If you choose to to obey God, if you choose to follow him, then you grow as a slave of God. You grow in the, the hold that obedience has upon you. I like to think of it this way. Obedience begets obedience. If I obey today, then the hold that God has on me grows in the future. I live more and more like a slave of God. Obedience to God becomes more natural. You could think of it as a habit. If I obey today, then obedience becomes a habit in my life that leads me towards greater obedience in the future. But in the contrast, if I give in to sin, I grow in slavery to sin. Sin begets sin. If I give in to sin today, then sin turns into a habit tomorrow that leads me further and further down the path of sin. In verse 19, Paul puts it this way. We gave into lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. If you give in to sin today, it leads to greater sin tomorrow. I think what Paul's doing in verses 16 and 19 is he is giving us a theology of habits and addictions. That's really what those verses are about, a theology of habits and addictions. I've studied this passage uh, many times. I find it incredibly uh, motivating, um, incredibly helpful and refreshing to study this passage. I've also studied a lot of the the recent science that I think is behind the theology Paul lays out here. And I want to share that with you. Here's uh, some of the most recent science that has been done on the study of habits and addictions. Um, This particular research I want to quote has been done by Dr. Nora Volkow. She's the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And she's a pioneer in the use of fMRI imaging to understand addiction. And what her research has concluded is this. Uh, Everyone will become an addict if sufficiently exposed to drugs or alcohol. And that can go for non-chemical addictions as well. Behaviors from gambling to shopping to sex may start out as habits but slide into addictions. In fact, almost anything deeply enjoyable can turn into an addiction. 
The pleasurable activity or substance causes the brain to release dopamine, providing feelings of enjoyment and reinforcement to motivate a person to seek out those activities again and again. Over time, a given amount of a, of a substance or of a particular activity releases less dopamine, meaning that more is required for the same physiological effect. That's desensitization. It leads to progressively expanding addiction, which has long-term effects on the brain's wiring. They're simply discovering the biology behind the theology of Paul in Romans 6. This is what he wanted us to understand. God designed the human body to develop habits. That's what he made our brains to do, develop habits. When I repeat activities over and over again, they begin to change the wiring in my mind so that that activity becomes a habit. If it's a good thing that I'm doing, then I build a righteous habit such that obedience becomes easier, more natural, more expected in my life in the future. That's a good habit. On the other hand, if it's a sinful thing I give into, then over time that develops into a sinful habit that eventually leads into a sinful addiction that takes me further and further down the path of sin. What this means, let's get really practical, what Paul wants us to understand is that all sin is inherently addictive. All sin, any sin, is inherently addictive. Not just theologically true, it's biologically and chemically true. That's why there are no small sins. The Bible knows nothing about minor sins or pet sins. God doesn't think of it that way. All sin is sin. All sin is serious. Why? Because all sin launches you down the biochemical spiritual pathway of addiction. If I give in to sin today, then it reinforces habits of sin so that I will sin tomorrow. But when I sin tomorrow, I don't get the same pleasure, the same reward that I got today. So I have to go further and deeper into sin. I have to get more and more of it to experience the same pleasure that I got today. And so that takes me further and further down the pathway of addiction. You see that all the time when you're dealing with sin. This is the pathology behind sexual sin, for example. A person gives in to lust in in what we would call a minor way, but, but that begins them down a pathway. He gives in today and that just reinforces the chance that he's going to give in tomorrow because he needs that that hit again. But when he gives in tomorrow, the hit is not as strong. And so he has to go a little further into sin. He goes a little deeper. And lust turns into pornography that turns into acting out that turns into all kinds of stuff that just destroys his life. That is the pathology of addiction, the pathology of sin. All sin is inherently addictive. If you give in to sin today, you increase the likelihood that you will give in to sin tomorrow and you will give in even deeper. The good news is obedience works the same way. If you give in to obedience today, you increase the likelihood that you will give in to obedience tomorrow. You increase the hold of obedience upon your life. You build a habit of obedience. That's the great news. When you obey, God works in you to build a righteous habit that leads you further and further down the path of greater and greater obedience. So, first reason, why should we not give in to sin? Because, contrast number one, when you give in to sin, you give sin power over your life. You become more and more a slave of sin. When you give in to obedience, you give obedience power in your life and become more and more a slave of obedience. That's the first contrast Paul pulls out. The second, when you give in to obedience, the result is sanctification. Sanctification, again, just to review that word, sanctification is the progressive growth in righteous behavior and righteous character. Paul's point is when I obey today, I grow in the direction of holiness. I grow to be more and more like God. And, and Paul fleshes out how that change happens in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. 
He tells us, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, This passage is, is great. It shows both our part and God's part in sanctification. Our part's at the beginning. What's our part? Obedience. Continue to obey. Day in and day out, obey God. That's our part. What's God's part? That's the end of the passage. As we obey, God works in us so that we both will and do according to his pleasure. In other words, God empowers obedience today and grows our desire for obedience tomorrow. As we obey day in and day out, God works in a supernatural way through his spirit in your mind, in your body, in your spirit to grow you in holiness, to grow you in sanctification. He empowers your obedience today and grows your desire for it tomorrow. That's God's part. So when I give into obedience, I grow in sanctification. If I give into sin, I grow in shame. Whereas obedience brings sanctification, sin brings shame. Shame is a, is a painful feeling of humiliation and regret as a result of a foolish or sinful choice. Painful feeling of regret. I, I find it interesting how Paul talks about shame in this passage. Look at verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? The tenses of the verbs here are significant. Paul is talking about sinful things they did before their conversion. A a long time ago, bad things they did way back there. But then he says, of which you are now ashamed. Paul's pointing out the fact, shame lingers, doesn't it? When you do something bad in the past and feel shame over it, that doesn't pass away in a day. Shame sticks. Shame sticks with us. It's a feeling we get every time we remember that thing that we did. This is where sin is such a lie. Sin promises you fun, satisfaction, reward, pleasure. Guess what? Yeah, you get that for a moment. And then when that feeling of satisfaction fades away, what do you get in its place? Shame that sticks. Pain that lingers. That's the false advertising of sin. It doesn't tell you part B. Joy for a moment, pain for a lifetime. When you give in to sin, the result is shame, shame that sticks. Finally, third contrast that Paul draws out. When you give in to obedience, it results in eternal life. Paul mentions that phrase twice, uh, both towards the end of our passage. He mentions eternal life. Now, uh, when we hear the phrase eternal life, what do you think of? You think of living with God in heaven forever. You think of being in heaven with God for all eternity. Well, that is part of eternal life. That's true. Eternal life includes being with God in heaven forever. Uh, But we need to understand, biblically speaking, eternal life is not only future. A couple verses from John. John 6, 47, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Present tense verb. If you believe in Jesus, you right this moment have eternal life. It's yours. You are living eternal life right now, or you can live it right now. It is future, but it is also present. That makes more sense when we look at John 17. Jesus defines eternal life. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is telling us, if you want to understand what eternal life, it's not just a, a, a duration of life forever. It's a quality of life. It's a quality of life where you are close to God. You are enjoying God's presence, his power, his peace, his joy, his provision, his blessing. He is close to you. That's what eternal life is, closeness to God. And that's not only a future thing. Yes, you'll have it in the future if you've trusted in Christ, but you can also have it now. 
You can live an eternal life right this moment. That's the hope of this passage. You can experience God's presence, his power, his provision, his blessing, his joy, his peace, his fruit in your life right this moment if you believe. That's where obedience fits in. Eternal life in the future guaranteed by faith alone. Eternal life enjoyed in the present through obedience. If I obey God, I get to enjoy now what I will enjoy in the future. I get to live it now through obedience. Okay, so if I obey, I get to experience eternal life, enjoy eternal life. In contrast, if I give in to sin, what do I get? Death. Death. Now, uh, when death is used in Romans, Paul can use it in a number of different ways. Um, Here he's using it similar to what we saw in Romans chapter 5. He's using the term holistically to refer to all of the negative consequences that come as a result of mankind's choice to participate in sin. And we looked at those in detail. Uh, death in a holistic sense, it includes broken relationships. It includes the, the absence of joy, peace, or power. It includes physical death and ultimately eternal death. Now, for those of us who are believers, Jesus has delivered us from the last one. Last one is, is off the list for us. You, you will never face eternal death. You will not be separated from God for eternity under his wrath. Jesus has delivered you from that part, but not the other parts. What Paul wants you to understand, if you're a believer and you choose to sin, then you are choosing to walk the path of death. You are choosing to live a life of death. I I like to picture it this way. Uh, Brian gave me this illustration. I love it. Um, All of life for those who are believers, if you're not a believer, you have only one choice. If you're believers, it comes down to a choice between two cul-de-sacs that we can live on, Two, two streets that we can walk. One street is labeled death. It's labeled death. It's full of pain and shame and regret, broken relationships, no joy, no peace, premature physical death, ultimate death. That's one cul-de-sac we can live on. Or we can live on a cul-de-sac called eternal life. Uh, Eternal life that's full of joy and peace in, in God's presence and power in this life and ultimately life with him forever. Now, as believers, we know when I die, I'm gonna live over here on eternal life street. I know that. Question is, where do I wanna live now? Which of those cul-de-sacs do I wanna walk in this life? Do I want to walk the one called eternal life where where I enjoy God's presence and power and peace and joy now or do I want to choose a cul-de-sac called death where I enjoy nothing but shame, regret, hurt, pain in my life? That's the choice you face every time you choose between sin and obedience. Do you want to walk the path of death or of life? That's the choice. That's the contrast. That's what Paul's pulling out in that famous verse, Romans 6.23. We think of it only as evangelism, an evangelistic verse. It's actually a general truth. It's true for all people, believers and unbelievers alike. For the wages of sin is death. That The payment that sin gives you is death. That is always true for all human beings. For unbelievers, every form of death, including eternal death. For believers, not eternal death, but all the other forms of death. Sin always brings death in your life. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God gives us this gift of eternal life. It's a free gift that we can enjoy right now. You can live it. You can experience it if you choose obedience. That's the choice that we face. I hope in looking at this that that you sense why sin is a bad choice. I hope you see through the false advertising of sin. Fun for a moment. Pain for a lifetime. I hope you see that clearly. I hope you feel motivation and conviction that you don't want to go down that path anymore. You don't want to live on the cul-de-sac of death. You don't want to give in to sin and addiction and all that it does. 
I hope you want to obey. That leads us to the, to the question, how do we do it? How do I walk in obedience? After all, sin is very alluring. For many of us, we have given in to sin for so long that it has built habits in our lives, maybe even addictions towards sin. How do we resist sin? That's where I want to end this morning with just some practical steps of, of application, some practical steps I'd encourage you to take. If you want to resist sin and walk in obedience, step number one, not a suggestion, true for all of us, you need regular accountability. That's true for, for every person here at all phases of your life. Again, not a suggestion, not, a, not something you should do, something you must do. If you want to resist sin, you've got to have accountability. And by accountability, I mean another mature believer of the same gender who knows how your struggle with sin is going. On a regular basis, weekly or biweekly, they're asking you the hard questions, they're talking through life with you, they are holding you accountable, and you're in this growth and obedience that God is calling you towards. Do you have that in your life? You can't win this battle without it. Accountability does a few things for for you. First of all, accountability keeps you vigilant because you're being asked the questions every week or every other week. It keeps you focused on your growth and obedience. Second, it gives you yet another reason not to give in to sin. I have accountability. I meet every week with a couple other pastors. And I gotta tell you, one of the reasons I don't wanna give in to sin is because I don't wanna confess it to them. That's, that's kind of shameful. I don't, I don't want to confess it to them. That just gives me more motivation, compels me even more to walk in obedience. And finally, you need accountability because when you do blow it, when you do give in to sin, having accountability gets you back on your feet fast. You got people praying for you. You got people who are watching over you, who are encouraging you and moving you back on the path of obedience. You got to have accountability. Every person in this room. Second step, and this one's particularly for those who find themselves deep in the pit of sinful habits or addictions. As I, as I was talking about the, the enslaving nature of sin, if you thought, man, that, that's me. <laughs> as, as I presented that research, if you thought that is what I am experiencing on a day-to-day basis, I don't need an fMRI to tell me that. That's me. I, I want to encourage you, you need to get help. You need to get help. There's no shame in that. All of us need help from time to time. If you're really struggling with some sin in your life, some area of sin, whether it's uh, sexual sin or, or substance abuse or an eating disorder or some emotional sin or, or relational sin, whatever it might be, let me encourage you, if you're really struggling with a sinful habit or addiction, some hang up, I want to point you to Celebrate Recovery. It's our ministry here. It actually meets here at Southwood on Tuesday evenings. It's our ministry to help move you towards the Lord and away from sin. It's basically a God-centered recovery program. Excellent program. I cannot recommend it highly enough. So if you're struggling with habits or addictions towards sin, check out that program. If you look at that and think, man, I, I just, I don't know that I can get over that step and actually go there. I kind of want to talk to someone first. Let me make a commitment to you guys. Our doors are always open. The leadership here at Grace, the staff, the elders, the leaders, we're here to talk to you. We're here to help you get back on the path away from sin and towards obedience. Let us help you. Please come, come talk to us. Final step that I want to give you. I really want to encourage you in this battle with sin. It's crucial to remember we're called to pursue God, not just avoid sin. I find so many, especially young believers who are really struggling with a sinful habit or addiction, life for them has boiled down to simply defending against sin. Success for me is not doing that thing today. Man, that's an empty and powerless way to live. Really depressing way to live if your life is all about what you don't do. Look with me at verse 13. We skipped this last week because I wanted to save it for today. Verse 13, Paul says, And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. 
Paul uses this verb present. It's got sacrificial terminology in it. It means to, to, to offer yourself to a God as an act of worship. And Paul wants us to offer our members. That's just a, a poetic way of talking about every part of you. Your body, your mind, your, your eyes, your hands, your feet, your time, your gifts, your money. Everything about you. Offer all of it as a sacrifice of worship. Not to sin, but to God. I think this is really significant. Paul didn't stop after the first half of the verse. He didn't simply say, don't present yourself to sin any longer. No, he said, don't present yourself to sin. Instead, present yourself every day. It's continual, continually present yourself to God as his slaves, as worship to serve him. I think what Paul has in mind is this. If I am so busy presenting my life, my time, my gifts, my money, all of me to God, then I have no time to present it to sin. You can only present yourself to one of two masters, not to both, only to one. So present yourself to God and you leave no room for sin. As Paul looks at the Christian life, the Christian life is not about what I avoid, it's about what I pursue. As I pursue the right things, I leave no time, energy, or opportunity for the wrong things. So if you are fighting against sin, if your life feels like it's boiled down to a really simple equation, did I do X today? I have good news for you. You can quit thinking about life that way. That's a defeating, powerless, joyless way to live. Instead, it's time to think about what did I do for the Lord today? That's the nature of life. As I run after God, as I follow him, I leave no time, room, energy, or effort to follow sin. That's where God wants to take us. He wants to move us from the slaves of sin that we used to be to the slaves of God that we can be. I love when you, when you study scripture, what you learn, biblical freedom, true freedom is the ability to do what's right not the ability to do whatever you want. It's the ability to become everything that God designed you to be. That's true freedom. That's what God wants for you. The ability to become everything God designed you to be. Let's pray for God's help to become that. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you for the fact that you have set us free. Through the blood of your son, the most costly payment made in all of human history, you have purchased us out of slavery to sin so that we will not experience the penalty of sin, so that we will live with you for all eternity. And so that in this life, so that we can resist sin and walk with you, thank you, Lord, for setting us free from sin. Father, I pray from anyone in this room who has not yet experienced that freedom, please, Lord, let this be the day of their salvation. Please, Father, I pray that in your spirit you would speak through uh, to their minds right this moment and help them to understand eternal life and forgiveness is theirs as a free gift. It's theirs now and forever as a free gift if they simply receive it, simply believe that Jesus really did die for them, for their sins, and rose from the dead to set them free. Help them to believe that good news this morning, Lord. We pray for all of us who have believed that, Lord, who have been set free from the legal ownership of sin. We're no longer sin slaves, Lord. I pray that you would help us to live that way, to live as if we truly are free of sin. I pray, Father, for anyone in this room who is uh, deep in the pit of sinful habits and addictions, Lord, I pray that you would throw them a rope this morning. I pray that you would draw them out of that addiction, out of that habit, help them to reach out, whether it's to celebrate recovery or to one of the leaders here at the church, Lord, help them to find help to move out of sin. And for all of us, Lord, I pray that you would grow us in habits of obedience. I pray, Father, that from this day forward, when the community looks at Grace Bible Church, I pray that they would see a people who walk in righteousness. 
who walk in love and joy and peace and obedience to you, Lord. Please help us to live lives of obedience. Help grow us, Lord, through the power of your spirit. Lead us further and further on in holiness. Lord, we pray that the result would be your glory, that the result would be the fame of Jesus Christ in us and through us. In his perfect name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Students, good luck with your finals.